I, um, I just have to echo the sentiment for just a moment. When you think about God's grace, how much we don't deserve from Him. And He blesses us. You still get amazed by that? We're going to sing Amazing Grace in just a few moments, so you might want to allow your heart to just kind of uh, fall into that. Well, uh, if I haven't met you yet, I'm Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad you're here. In a moment, I'm going to be reading from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 7. So get a Bible, if you will. Find that Old Testament book, Isaiah, and look at chapter 7. We um, are talking about how God is good, gracious, loving, how he pursues people even when they're broken. That's where we were last week. And when he is able to connect with us, then he uh, also rebuilds. He redeems us and rebuilds us so that we are new people. And I want to reflect uh, with you about that for just a moment. And I had to do a blast from the past to do that. How many of you have heard of the Six Million Dollar Man? I just wanted to see who didn't, actually. Yeah, you young, young people. Okay. But uh, back in the 70s, there was a, a show that just became iconic, and it was so popular, everybody uh, was kind of captured by it. But uh, the backstory to it is that uh, there was a guy by the name of Steve Austin who was an astronaut and test pilot who uh, was flying a, an aircraft that crashed, and the crash was so horrific, he lost both of his legs, he lost his right arm, and he lost his left eye, and uh, as this surgical team is hovering over him because he's almost lost his life. They're pondering, what in the world should we do? And one of the uh, high-up government officials comes in and utters what became a very iconic statement that people began to speak of all the time in that day. And he said, you know, we can rebuild him. We have the technology. I love that line. You know, in my own fantasy, sometimes I would think, oh, to be bionic, you know. So this guy had bionic legs and a bionic arm and a bionic eye. He was stronger by a hundred times than a normal human. He could run a hundred times faster. He uh, had uh, an eyesight that could see in great distances and, you know, it was all these incredible things. And so he began to work for the government as an agent and did all kinds of wonderful life-saving things, etc. I've reflected on that because it's not unlike what God can and will do with you and with me. Uh, We just have to understand we are as broken, we are as busted as Steve Austin was after that uh, plane crash. We're broken people. And, and, And by and large, we can kind of acknowledge that, yeah, yeah, I'm not perfect. But I'm not that bad. And the reality is, we're, we're pretty bad. Yeah. Um, we are so far off the mark of what God planned. Now, if you want to look you know, t- to your neighbor, left or right, and go, yeah, I'm better than them, that, well, go for that. But if you're going to be looking at God and the standard that God had for human life, and that's all embodied in the person of Jesus... 
I mean, we are so busted in our relationships. We're so broken in whether we can love people or receive love from people, if we can uh, make amends, if we can make wrongs right, if we can do the work of forgiveness, if we can be a generous people, a compassionate people, if we can work for uh, justice in very unjust situations. We're broken. And God purposes to pursue us in our brokenness, embrace us in His amazing grace, and redeem and rebuild us. Now, that's a lot of what the book of Isaiah has to do with. And um, you're going to be in Isaiah for a while because it's a big book. Uh, and so we're going to focus a little bit about who he was and what he said and what God was seeking to accomplish in his time, as well as in the time to come, because uh, Isaiah is one of those that gives us a lot of prophetic utterances about the coming Messiah that's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You'll begin your readings this week with Isaiah chapter 5, and it'll be uh, kind of a parabolic look at a vineyard. A vineyard that had been labored over. The soil had been carefully cultivated, rid of all kinds of stuff that would hinder growth. And uh, choice seed had been planted and fertilized and uh, little trenches for irrigation had been uh, dug and a wall had been placed around it so that it could be protected. Everything that needed to be done to have a wonderful fruit producing vineyard had taken place. And yet, the parable goes on to say, all it produced was, one version renders it rather tamely, all it produced was stink grapes. Now, I'll let you look at a commentary to see what that word really means. But it's pretty bad in terms of what kinds of fruit was produced. And... Isaiah goes on to expound that God is so displeased because it's not his fault. He is uh, the one who has done all the work for the vineyard. He has every reason to expect that the vineyard will produce great fruit. And yet uh, we've not cooperated with him. And so he utters a number of woes. God says, woe to you who are materialist who are given to drunkenness who have become doubters you don't really believe me you don't really have a faith experience with me you've come to a point where you call evil good and you call the things that are good evil you become arrogant and conceited you think way too highly of yourself and you're bribe takers you can be bought uh, just put the right little uh, tantalizing thing out there and you will compromise whatever in order to gain that reward. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, Isaiah says to his people in his day. Now, what's his day? So, as you know, um, the kingdom that had been united, called Israel, divided. And it divided into a north and a south. The north called Israel, the south called Judah. And about 200 years into this divided kingdom, on comes Isaiah. Isaiah is about 800 years before Jesus. All right? So you get the time frame. There have been a series of bad kings in the north, Israel. 
And there has been a series of bad kings in the south, Judah, with just a sprinkling every now and then of a good king. Israel in the north is way worse off than Judah in the south, but they both are in bad shape. And so along comes an Amos. We talked about this last week, and he's prophesying. God's dropped his plumb line into your midst. He has measured you. You are crooked. You are wicked. God's got to do something about that if you don't repent. Return to me, return to me, return to me, return to me, he kept saying to, uh, in, in voicing that for God. Hosea comes along and says, uh, this is like my, you're, the nation of Israel is like my marriage. It's full of unfaithfulness. We're cheating on God left and right. So these are his contemporaries, Amos, Hosea, and now we're looking at Isaiah. And as Isaiah is reflecting on all these things and he's beginning to voice these things on behalf of God, the king, Uzziah, dies. And so on that day, he goes into the temple. And uh, a favorite to a lot of us is Isaiah's chapter 6 because of uh, how God interacted with Isaiah there. And he calls Isaiah to be a prophet. Now, real quickly, uh, and you'll enjoy reading this again uh, if you haven't read it the first time. Um, Isaiah walks into the temple and he is so overcome with the presence of God, which has manifest in the temple. He's so overcome with that. All, all he can uh, respond to is that the holiness of God is manifest. It's just filling up this temple, and it's as if he can now hear angelic beings all around him declaring the holiness, holy, 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 holy is the Lord of hosts. And he falls repentant. Now, arguably, this may be the most moral man in Israel, and yet he understands how broken he is, and he confesses, I am a man of unclean lips, I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips, And at that point, an angel takes a hot coal off of the altar and comes and touches his lips and begins to purge him and cleanse him of his sin. And then when you get to verse 8, you have this great um, demonstration and picture of what happens when we legitimately encounter God in the way that Isaiah encountered God. So it's as if he can begin to hear, he can begin to discern what's being talked about in the heavenlies, amongst the heavenly council, if you will. Uh, what purposes, what plans is God all about? And he can hear God say, we're going to send someone on our behalf for this mission. Who can we send? And it's as if Isaiah was like, oh, oh, I'll go, I'll go, me. Now, when's the last time you that eagerly volunteered for anything except some kind of free giveaway? And the point is that there had been such a transforming thing to take place in Isaiah. He was utterly consumed with who God is, what God's about, and that's, what, that's all he wants for his own life. I just want God. I just want what God's about. Me, me, me. Choose me. I'll serve you. And so that brings us into um, the matters that are found in chapter 7 that I want to give you a little background to. When we begin to read in verse 1, we're going to see that a conspiracy is in the works against the southern kingdom of Judah. 
As it turns out, the northern kingdom of Israel has made an alliance with their northern neighbor, Syria, and they are conspiring to come against Judah and make Judah either join forces with them against Assyria or to be subjugated to them. Now you go, what, who, where? So right here is Jerusalem, capital of the southern kingdom. And then right here is Samaria, the capital of the northern kingdom. And then right here is Damascus, the capital of Syria. So you can see these two northern neighbors conspire against their southern counterpart. Now, Assyria basically is the world power of its day. Everything that you see in green represents the Assyrian Empire. And their capital is Nineveh right there, uh, a la the Jonah fame. And so uh, Assyria had been coming down on Syria. It had been coming down on Israel. It had been coming down on Judah. And now they're trying to create this alliance against Assyria, and Judah won't join in. Their king at that time is Ahaz, and Ahaz won't have anything to do with it. So they are basically saying, well, then we're going to conquer you, and we're going to put our own person on your throne, and then we'll have all of Judah join us in the battle against Assyria. You still with me? I know. Okay. So this is where Isaiah steps into the picture to begin to speak the word of God into this situation. So let's look in chapter 7. And, and here's what you're going to want to recall. And you're going to be seeing this as you read across Isaiah for these coming weeks. Isaiah is so taken with the person of God and the purposes of God. He is so consumed with that that God begins to show him more and more and more and more. Nobody tells us more about the coming Messiah that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ than Isaiah. And I've given you just a quick sampling of what Isaiah was able to see and to pass on to us and all the generations that have happened in uh, these centuries. That the Messiah is going to be virgin born, govern the world, be of the Davidic line, Holy Spirit in power, judge righteously at, at uh, the point in which he is upon uh, his throne. Restore the nations, be a light to Gentiles, rejected by... I could go on and on and on. There's, there's many more than what I've just listed. That's just a quick sampling. The point is, this is the DNA of the man who is now going to come and talk to Ahaz. This man is consumed with the person of God and the purposes of God. He has seen from afar the things that God is about and what God's going to accomplish. How absolutely amazing God's grace is going to be in a saving, redemptive way. And in that context, he begins to speak to Ahaz. In chapter 7, let's look at verse 1. So in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remelia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. And when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. 
So notice all these little descriptors and don't get too uh, sidetracked with that. You know that the northern kingdom of Israel is made up of ten tribes. The most dominant tribe out of those ten is Ephraim. And so often, as a synonym to Israel, it's sometimes referred to as Ephraim. Okay? Similarly, in the south, uh, a lot of times uh, the king of Judah will also be referred to as a member of the house of David because he is in that lineage. And so that's what those words are just about. Uh, So when the house of David, Judah, Jerusalem, is told that Syria is in league with Ephraim slash Israel, they begin to shake so bad it's like trees shaking in the wind. Now, Ahaz uh, hasn't been on the throne that long. He's a, he's a fairly young guy. And uh, Uzziah, uh, a predecessor to him, had not been that bad of an example. There's about a five-year gap between chapter 6 and chapter 7, from the time that Isaiah is in the temple mourning Uzziah's death to the time he's standing before Ahaz. And verse uh, 3, the Lord says to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shir Yashuv, your son. And here's another little, uh, by the way, as Isaiah has been faithful to follow God, God says, okay, by the way, I'm going to name your children for you. You're not going to name your children. I'm going to name your children. And so this child, uh, God had told Isaiah to name Shir Yashuv, which is to say, there will be a remnant someday that returns to me. There's a whole lot in all these names that you'll want to reflect on as you read this week. So he goes out to meet Ahaz uh, with his son, Shir Yashuv, and at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. So he's out by the aqueduct where the water, apparently he's checking the water supply that's going to come into the city because if they're going to be attacked, they want to make sure they have plenty of water. Go out there and say to him, verse 4, be careful, be quiet. Do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remelia. That's Pekah. So if you're catching what he's saying again in this very picturesque language, don't worry about these two kings and these two nations. They're not going to amount to anything. They will be like burning stumps. I'm going to take care of them. They're not going to be around too long to hassle you. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remelia has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God. So in other words, I know their plan. They think they're going to dethrone you. They think they're going to put somebody else on the throne that will be a puppet to them. I'm not going to let it happen. Now, if Isaiah had come to you and you were Ahaz, what would you do with that word? You have to think about that for a moment. Ahaz can't believe it. He just, I mean, the world powers Assyria, Syria, and Israel that have been enveloping him have been so frightening to him, he's so full of fear, he can't hear a word from God. Have you ever been there? 
And so Isaiah brings an assuring word to him. God's got a plan. Nothing's going to thwart God's plan. And you, you know what the plan is, right? Through the line of David, through Judah, ultimately God's going to bring a Savior. That's what we were just looking at all those Messianic passages about. If Judah is out of the picture, God's plan is thwarted. God is not going to have his plan thwarted. Judah is not going to be out of the picture. But Ahaz can't believe it. So uh, move ahead with me in the text to verse 10. And there the Lord again speaks to Ahaz and he says, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. In other words, there is no dimension too big for the sign you want. You ask me any sign you want to ask for and I will show you that I mean business. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, that sounds kind of pious, doesn't it? In fact, there are verses that say, don't put the Lord to the test. This text would suggest, don't put the Lord to the test unless he tells you to. At which point, you put the Lord to the test. And so Ahaz won't do it. And uh, the primary reason that Ahaz won't put God to the test is because he doesn't want to know what God's going to do or what God's going to say. He thinks this is going to turn out badly for himself. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey. And when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, for before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since that day Ephraim departed from Judah and the king of Assyria. Now, what did he just say? Real quickly, because this isn't where we're even going to spend our time. Um, I, I told you to ask me for a sign. Let me show you what I intend to do. You wouldn't ask me, so here, here's the message. Here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to take care of Pekah and Rezin. I'm going to take care of Israel and Syria. They're going to be gone in a couple of years. Historically, they were gone in two years. Both dead. Um, and within 65 years, the northern kingdom, Assyria, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel was so smashed by Assyria that they weren't even a people anymore. He came in and, and conquered uh, Samaria, took the Jews out of Samaria and took them up into Assyria and spread them around some different cities. And they became servants to you know, a number of people. And in their stead, he took other people groups and moved them into Samaria and the surrounding area so that they could never unify again, so that they could never be uh, a people with an identity again. They were forever removed from being God's people in that in that way. That's all the backdrop to the New Testament stories about why Jews hated Samaritans. It all happens right here in that whole episode. Because they become racially half breeds and theologically not even half believers. 
They just kind of syncretize a little bit of God and a little bit of the Assyrian gods, a little bit of the Syrian gods, a little bit of the Babylonian gods, and so on like that. So when uh, Ahaz won't trust God, he says, not only is all this going to befall Syria and Israel, but it's going to be a bad day for you too. And I'm going to bring judgment to you and to your house. So, verse 18, in that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And that's basically just little uh, symbolic ways to say, I'm going to bring Egypt up against you. I'm going to bring Assyria down on you. And um, it's going to be a hard time. Now, I've given you all that background stuff for this purpose, for this very moment. I want you to contrast the lives of Isaiah and Ahaz. And this is what God wants to, I think, speak to us about. This is what it's all about for this morning. Because what we're saying is that God loves you. God is merciful to you. God has a great plan for you. God is going to extend all kinds of grace to redeem and transform and rebuild your life. But what does that look like? And what I'm suggesting to you is that it looks like Isaiah. It does not look like Ahaz. So, for example, what did Ahaz really, 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 really want? Ahaz wanted to be delivered from his enemies. He wanted to be prosperous. He wanted to be powerful. He wanted to have some fame. He wanted to be successful. But he just kind of suspected that God might have a different agenda than all those goodies for him. And so he kept at arm's length from God. He kept distance between himself and God and ultimately turned his back on God. Isaiah wanted God and the messianic ministry of the Savior. Now, don't miss this. What do you really want? Because you see, so much in our culture today, uh, there is an esteem for Jesus. I like Jesus, I just don't like the church. I like Jesus, I just don't like Christianity. I like Jesus, but I don't like what all these evangelicals are about. And granted, there's a lot that's busted about Christianity, about the church, about the institution, about the history, about a lot of mistakes that have been made, and so on and so on. But at the core of it all, Christ following is about the glory of God and the purposes of God coming to pass in us and amongst us. That, that's what it is at its essence and core. And, and the fact of the matter is, a lot of people that have some level of openness to Jesus or to Christianity have it in this kind of way. I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. I don't want to have a hard life. I want life to go better. I want life to have more sanity. 
I want life to have more blessings. And we are more like Ahaz with that kind of sentiment than we are like Isaiah. So here's the deal. When God is looking to redeem you and rebuild you, He is not looking to build a better you. How can I just build the best Scott Brewer that Scott Brewer can be? That's not what he's up to. God's agenda is totally to build your life into the Christ life. Now you have to think about Jesus for a moment. How taken was Jesus with the Father? How obsessed, how possessed by all that the Father was about was Jesus. I mean, he comes to a point in John chapter 5 where he says, listen, I won't do anything. I won't do anything unless I see my Father in heaven doing it. Unless I have a sense, this is what the Father is about. And when he began to gather followers, Jesus said, now understand, your life is not your own. You've been bought with a price. You belong to God if you follow Christ. So, back to the $6 million man in Steve Austin, which, by the way, in today's dollars would be $30 million. I, I did look it up. Um, but back to Steve Austin and his whole transformation, he, had, he, he became a different person. He had altogether different capabilities that ushered him into a new day with a new purpose, with a, a whole new life. And when you begin to follow Christ, God begins to move on your life and in your life in such a way you have all kinds of new capacities. You can walk with God like you have never walked with God. You can discern and see the ways of God like you couldn't before you had that bionic eye. You can begin to join God in the work of God like you've never been able to do the work of God. Because of the way he comes on you and begins to transform you and begins to rebuild you. But friends, it remains all about God. Not about you. Not about me. So we're back at the same question. What do you really want? A lot of us just want heaven. We just want life to go better. We just want the problems to be fixed. We just want pain to be relieved. And God basically says, my purpose is that you become like Christ and you become so given and committed to me and to my purposes that you're willing to suffer whatever pain, whatever deprivation, whatever lack, uh, whatever sacrifices are called for to my glory and to my purposes. Now, in the New Testament, it's said to us this way, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, anyone who belongs to Christ has become an altogether new person. The old life's gone. And a new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself 
through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. Friends, there is your life statement. Reconciled to God by Christ, now spending the rest of your life and the rest of your breath reconciling others to God with Christ. And if that is not where I cut you and you bleed that, then there's more of Ahaz than Isaiah in you. So, what do we do with all that? Let me just pose three ideas to you. First of all, would you just be honest? Be honest about what you really want. I get conflicted about that. I get double-minded about that. But God calls for us to be single-mindedly, wholeheartedly about Him. And these kinds of gatherings and the gatherings in your small group and whatever accountability relationship you have and the time that you spend in the world, it's all about His continuing to sanctify and to make holy and to separate you from double-mindedness into a single-mindedness into a single purpose. So can you just kind of be honest and admit where you are? And will you admit you can't have the Jesus life on your own effort? You have to be rebuilt. You don't have the goods for the Jesus life. You have to be rebuilt. And that's a faith encounter with God where you by faith believe Jesus, the death, the burial, the resurrection. You appropriate that all into your heart. You give your life to him and he begins to rebuild you. And a lot of that happens in community here with one another. And will you trust Jesus to save and rebuild you. You can't do it, but I will trust. I will bet my life he can do it. My friends, we've been saying together, oh, it's an amazing grace that God has and gives. Is that theory? Or is that your reality? Let me pray for you. So, Father, you brought us uh, to this moment today to, like you did with Ahaz, confront us about some reality. There's some big problems circulating around us. There are these big foreboding, uh, what seem to be opponents to our lives. Are we going to be able to make it economically? Are we going to handle this health situation? What are we going to do about that relationship that's all busted and so on? So, God, help us to hear. You're sovereign. You're powerful over all that stuff. And by your grace, would you help us trust you to build our lives on you? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.